1926, a young American composer named George Gershwin read a novel called Porgy. It was by a white guy from Charleston, South Carolina, named DeBose Haywood, and it was all about a community of poor black people living in a dockside village called Catfish Row. There's Bess, the good-time girl, her thuggish boyfriend Crown, the drug dealer, sporting life, and the saintly paraplegic Porgy, his busted legs, a heavy-handed symbol of the emasculated black race in America. And when he read Porgy, George Gershwin thought, I can make this into an opera. Not an opera made from classical music, but from popular songs. Some of them folk songs and spirituals, and some of them big emotional numbers not a million miles from the power ballads of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Les Miserables. It took nearly a decade, but eventually, in 1934, Porgy and Bess opened on Broadway. Sadly, first time out, Porgy and Bess tanked. But following a revival in 1942, its fame grew and grew. Still, productions were rare, particularly outside the U.S., because the Gershwin estate insisted that Porgy and Bess could only be performed by a cast of black American opera singers. Then, in 1965, something very singular happened. To explain, here's an extract from what was called the Māori Programme, presented by the late Widamu Parker. Welcome once again to our Māori program in English and to our Māori friends, King Aiwionga Haue Whao Te Motu, Te Nānō Rākoutou. Tonight we are telling you about a visit we made to the New Zealand Opera Company's centre where they're rehearsing with a mainly Māori cast, Porgy and Bess. Back in 1965, there were far fewer media events, and Porgy and Bess was a really big thing. The Māori programme gave it serious coverage, and in this programme, we are going to hear some of the recordings Widamu Parker and other broadcasters made at the time. On our way to have a word with the opera company's general manager, Ulrich Williams, we heard them rehearsing. Yeah. 
Actually, Porgy and Bess has been under consideration by the company for quite a few years now, uh, doing it with a Maori cast, that is. And uh, the matter was crystallised, as far as the opera company was concerned, I think, when the Pan Pacific Festival of the Arts in Christchurch approached us to see if we'd do an opera for the festival, and they asked in particular, would it be possible to do Porgy and Bess, as it fitted in so well with the theme of the festival? The board of directors of the company considered it and decided, yes, it was possible, and they would do it. So auditions throughout Maoridom were held. We went right through the country. I think we've heard about 300 Maoris in auditions, and from that number we've chosen a chorus of 30 and also some of the smaller parts, and, of course, one of, uh, several of the principals as well. The auditions went very well. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we were surprised at the standard. It was much better than we'd expected. And the people we have got, we think, uh, of a very high standard, and they are doing exceptionally well. Even after a fortnight, the chorus is making quite a thrilling sound. The cast itself will be led, of course, by Inia Tiwiata playing Porgy. And then we have three Negroes. Now, people have asked us, why did we not have an entire Maori cast? Well, Bess and Crown and Serena's uh, are very difficult operatic parts. And while we might have Maoris in New Zealand who could actually sing the role, they certainly could not sing it for six performances a week. And so it was necessary to get people with operatic training and who were professional musicians. For Bess, we have Martha Flowers, for Crown, John McCurry, and Serena Dolores Ivory. Three excellent Negro artists right at the top of the field as far as they're concerned. The other parts, uh, Maori parts, Clara is sung by Isabel Cowan. Well, she was Isabel Fotterau before she was married, very well known by the Maoris and by a lot of Pakehas. Maria, Hannah Tartner. Hannah, of course, has sung with the company. She sang Carmen three or four years ago, is one of the best singers in New Zealand and should make an exceedingly good Maria. Uh, Sporting Life, very big part, is taken by Tony Williams. Tony's made a name for himself as a pop singer, uh, very well known amongst the younger people and I think will be known by everyone in New Zealand by the time Porgy and Bess is finished. Um, Jake, Mark Metakingi, who's toured with the company in the chorus, and those are the main, uh, main parts. Um, I would like to say that the cast have been rehearsing now for two weeks, and they're a delightful people to deal with. We've had no trouble with them. They're punctual, uh, extremely well-behaved, and uh, most enthusiastic, working extremely hard, and from the opera company's point of view, we couldn't have a better chorus or a better bunch of people to have dealings with. A fairly obvious question is, why wasn't Kerry Takanawa in Porgy and Bess? They asked her, but Kerry's game plan in 1965 was competing in the big classical music prize called the Mobile Song Quest and the Sun Aria competitions in Australia. Another performer who turned down Porgy and Bess was Kiwi pop star Howard Morrison, so the role of the drug dealer's sporting life went to another great Kiwi entertainer, Rarotongan-born Tony Williams, who strutted into rehearsals wearing winkle pickers. It ain't necessarily so. The little day went was small, but a mine. He fought big Goliath, who 
hard on nostalgia, but it ain't necessarily so. Nostalgia's just a big happy fib about the past, so for a change, let's forget the never-ending Beatles marketing and really turn the clock back to the good old days. In 1965, the environment was one giant rubbish dump and the rivers were open sewers. Houses were uninsulated and dimly lit with 40-watt light bulbs, <laughs> if the electricity was actually going. Culturally, New Zealand in 1965 had all the thrills of a retirement village. It was an authoritarian, ruthlessly conformist society and excruciatingly mumsy. Anything nasty was swept under the rug because Nana only wants to hear about nice things. Problems weren't solved. They were covered up with happy fibs. In 1965, it was illegal to pay a woman the same as a man for doing the same job. The banks refused to give mortgages to women, either. There was no Bill of Rights, no Human Rights Commission, no Race Relations Conciliator, no Ombudsman, no Matrimonial Property Act, no Police Complaints Authority. The Treaty of Waitangi had no legal status. Land nicked from Māori by successive governments was apparently gone forever, but everyone knew that our Marys were blissfully happy, always singing jolly action songs, pig hunting, drinking beer, and singing more jolly action songs. The 60s. Yay! Harry Bruzy had had them for 12 days, and in his opinion... They've been simply marvellous. Mm -hmm. They've worked like Trojans, and everything I do, they try to do, and I'm quite thrilled. We have not yet completed a fortnight of work, and I doubt if any chorus, whether it's <coughs> Mali or Pakistan, would have sung better, and they've practically they've now pretty well got it memorised. And uh, if you hear yeah. the score, it's terrifically difficult. It's not the light opera by any means, it's grand opera or folk opera. It's most dramatic, it's most poignant. They almost sing like Negroes. But there's still there's something of the Maori quality that I don't want to take away from this singing. Oh, my God. 
The racial politics of Porgy and Bess can get your brain playing Twister for hours. Even at the time the show was written, there were concerns about a white guy like DeBose Haywood and the Jewish Gershwin brothers daring to speak on behalf of black Americans. Even nowadays, many black opera singers won't touch Porgy and Bess, and it's as much about class politics as about racial politics. It's the same complaint people had about Billy T. James or Brotown or Once Were Warriors. The characters are nasty working-class stereotypes. Sporting Life the drug dealer, Crown and Bess, who are probably a pimp and a hooker. Ironically, the very characters venerated in hip-hop culture. But upwardly mobile types want the embarrassing working-class rallies shoved under the carpet. Can't we have nice aspirational roles like quantity surveyors and dental hygienists? Can't we have happy fibs? Why did the Black Stars come out here to do the show? By the mid-60s, opera houses were just starting to open up to black performers, but black or white, it's only the biggest stars in opera who get consistent work. A gig's a gig. There's also the fact that Porgy and Bess is a great show. And there were other factors. It was only a couple of years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the fear of nuclear war was very, very real. Meanwhile, the white supremacists in America had turned the battle over civil rights into a shooting war, and there was no clear sign of how bad things were going to get. Fifty years on, the answer still appears to be unendingly awful. For sure, in 1965, America was a great place for black people to be out of. The arrival of Inia Tewiata, who plays Porgy, and the three Negro principals and producer Miss Erla Gerber, occasioned a Maori welcome by the Maori cast and executives of the opera company. We hear the wedo, or challenge, followed by a porfiri, a welcome. Mark Metakini and Isabel Cowan greeted the visitors with a hongi, and the whaikorero, or greeting, by Tutakainamu, was followed by an action song of welcome. Itoi, tēnā koe, tēnā koe, tēnā koe. 
Coming to the back end of nowhere must have been a very weird experience for the black performers. The South Pacific wasn't exactly barley high. Months and months without a decent cup of coffee, and the whole place must have just seemed peculiar. Just for example, a couple of years before Porgy and Bess, Marilyn Monroe had one of her biggest hits in a comedy called Some Like It Hot. Marilyn played a 1920s jazz singer named Sugar Kane and sang this old song from 1922. Running wild, lost control, running wild, mighty bold, feeling gay, reckless too, carefree mind all the time, never blue, always going, don't know where, always showing, I don't care. So a couple of years later, Dobbs, Franks and Martha Flowers and co. fly all the way down to New Zealand and the chorus greets them with this traditional ancient waiata. Curry of New York, one of the three Negro principals, spoke on their behalf. I mean, what, what do you say after a welcome like that? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, they have a saying in theater, how do you follow an act like that? I mean, all I can say, and I think I express the opinion of both the girls and myself, and, you know, we're very glad to be here, and it, it's, it's going to be, I'm looking forward. I really am looking forward to doing this. As I was telling the, some of the people that I was talking to back here, it's going to be a ball. <laughs> the visiting Americans are all great performers, but I'm not being parochial when I say that the biggest star in the cast was local boy Enia Tawiata. The whole thing was designed as a star vehicle for him. Enia remains one of the greatest international stars this country has ever produced. Hyper-smart, hyper-gifted, and oozing star quality, Enia was Nati Rokawa, born in Otaki in 1915. He trained as a master carver, singing a bit on the side, but his astonishing bass baritone voice opened amazing doors for him and took him to London for operatic training. 
He ended up at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and also starred in musical theatre on the West End stage. If you've ever been to New Zealand House in the Haymarket, you may have seen the giant po'ihi that Inia carved for the building. There's a lovely story about an Australian Aboriginal activist in the 80s going to Britain, planting a flag on the beach and claiming the British Isles for his people. <laughs> Way to go. Inia's po'ihi does exactly the same thing for Māori and right in the heart of the London Theatre District. Inia te wiata, the first person other than a Negro to play porgy, replied to the welcome. On behalf of uh, my wife and uh, our American friends, I'd like to say how wonderful it is to be welcomed like this, coming back home after having been away for so long. And also, it was a great thrill for me when I was asked to play the part of Porgy in Porgy and Bess. And now that I see Crown and Bess and uh, Serena, Serena I'm more thrilled than ever, because I've got a great job carrying on with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is really wonderful to be home with you, and, we, and I'm looking forward to working with all of you. Um, it's a great honor for me to be in the, in the cast with, with our friends from America here, and I hope that I can stand up to their quality, because I know what they do in the States. They're absolutely wonderful. And uh, all I can say is, it's wonderful to be home, and uh, I'm glad that you've met my wife, too, and my little daughter around here for the first time. She's having her second birthday in this country, <laughs> in my home country, and I've brought her home to be christened here, too, at the same time. <laughs> and once again, thank you for such a wonderful, warm welcome. Finally, we heard from Ella Gerber, the New York producer, who has produced Porgy and Bess in several countries. To tell you about my impressions of New Zealand, I've only been here a day, but already I've been deeply touched and moved by the, the spirit and the heart of the Maori people. Uh, yesterday, when they met me at the airport, I, I dissolved into tears because I was so affected by their greeting. I know already, since I've talked to a good many of the people in the cast, all of them, as a matter of fact, because I met Hannah, uh, who plays Marie and Mariah, up in Auckland when I arrived. And her response was also very warm and giving, and uh, I feel the same way about Mr. Inia Tiwiata, who I just met five minutes ago, and um, our, the cast, which we brought over, the Bess and the Serena, the Bess is Martha Flowers, the Serena is Doris Ivory, and the Crown is John McCurry. They have all worked with me before when we did Porgy before, many, many times, and uh, I really believe that the show will be tremendously exciting and thrilling and that it will make a deep impression on the people in New Zealand. The chorus music for Porgy and Bess is fiendishly difficult, and most of the cast had never acted before. When they gathered in Wellington, they were in for a baptism by fire, and it nearly broke them. Putting on musical theatre is not fun. The cast had to learn to deliver six perfect shows a week, every week. It's more or less army discipline, with the director as commanding officer, and glamorous American director Ella Gerber simply scared the daylights out of a cast. 
bit of a disaster waiting to happen, really. God knows, in the good old days, Pākehā culture was sexist enough. In 1965, there were virtually no professional women in positions of authority. And, of course, just to improve matters, there was also the usual productive inter-iwi argy-bargy between the cast members. Morale slid downhill. Between rehearsals, the cast would sing action songs to keep their spirits up, and Ella would shout that that was what she was looking for. The chorus were on the verge of bottling out, and they only knuckled down when Inia Tawiata read them the riot act in Te Reo. The cast also got a pep talk from a very serious komatua, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Bennett, DSO, former commander of the Māori Battalion. It is right that we should come here to, to meet our relations from all these various marais, and we're very glad of this opportunity. We're also glad to hear from you that the cast is performing extremely well, and having regard for the stuff of which they are made, I am sure they're going to make a tremendous success of this undertaking. Mind you, I don't think you can claim the right to having produced the first Maori opera. I think we know quite well that Hill's Hinamore was produced many, many years ago. And in point of fact, here's one of the cards here in Mrs. Wittarina Harris. <laughs> but it is a new peak as far as the Maori people are concerned, which is being attempted. And I think we must agree that within the last few years, within the last decade or two, the Maori people as a whole have launched out into all sorts of new fields of endeavour. This is an extremely important one, but by nature of the fact that the Maori has this kind of natural uh, musical background handed down, down to him by, by his forebears, it is not surprising to learn that they are doing so well. Well, I hope that they will travel the land and that they will and you, the company as a whole, will meet with the success it deserves. Because I think the Māori people owe a great debt to the New Zealand Opera Company. Because out of the goodness of their hearts, they have, for the first time in New Zealand, decided to give Māori musical talent a free reign. This is a valuable opportunity, as far as the Māori is concerned, we as a race are grateful to the New Zealand Opera Company and now it is over to you, over to you to make sure that this is a success. May God bless you in all your endeavours. May he lead you on from success to success as you move throughout the various centres of New Zealand. Kia ora,
The tour opened in Christchurch on March the 1st, 1965, and aside from the main centres, went to Invercargill, Palmerston North, Napier and Hastings, and Hamilton, before finishing in Auckland in June. It was a massive hit. Eniata Weata reckoned they could have toured New Zealand for 18 months. It's such a shame. There was no Radio New Zealand concert in those days, so Porgy and Bess was never recorded. Widamu Parker's rehearsal recordings are probably the only real souvenirs of the production. But Inia had recorded a couple of numbers in London, and these were released on a tie-in EP over here. On some numbers, he duetted with the black Canadian soprano Isabel Lucas, and I Loves You Porgy will maybe give you an inkling of the stage production. And then, perhaps the most precious of Widamu Parker's rehearsal recordings, Isabel Cowan singing the most famous song from the score.
Welcome again to our Māori program and to our Māori listeners. Tēnā koutou katoa e noho mai nai o koutou kāinga. Hoggy and Bess is going to Australia. Following their successful New Zealand tour, an arrangement has been made with the Elizabethan Trust. Ulrich Williams, the general manager of the New Zealand Opera Company, told Leo Fowler... Well, uh, Leo, we have been anxious to take the show to Australia ever since it was first thought of, really, and we've had long and protracted negotiations extending over a year, really. There were many difficulties in getting the show over there, mostly financial, I must admit. It's an extremely expensive show to put on, and the costs of taking a big company like this overseas are, are tremendous, really. And that has been our main hurdle. However, they have been overcome, and we are now in association with the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust, which is our counterpart in Australia. They're a non-profit-making organisation like ourselves, and we are in partnership, and together we're presenting Porgy and Bess in Australia. Five months to it. Now, I understand that they're taking part uh, as a purely Maori group on the side, as it were, at some Commonwealth festival. Is that right? Uh, this is during the rehearsal period in Sydney. There's an Asian trade fair, actually, and there's a big pageant in connection with it uh, being held at the Sydney showgrounds. And the Porgy and Bess Corey, uh, Chorus will be representing New Zealand and will be doing Maori traditional numbers. They're quite short. It's, it's a group of about six or seven minutes. All the countries participating in the trade fair are taking part in this pageant. Now, has there ever, to your knowledge, been anything of this high, rigid, professional standard in the Maori world of entertainment before? No, I don't think so. And this is, in fact, I'm quite certain, this is a first. And it's the first time, indeed, that a profession, as far as I know, a professional New Zealand theatrical company has toured Australia, anything of this nature. There might have been, certainly there's been small groups and uh, popular music and so forth, but this is the first time, as far as I know, that New Zealand has taken a big show, and in this case, it's, it's an opera, uh, to Australia. And they've been sending them to us, of course, for the last, what, 50, 60 years? And uh, I think it's a thrilling thing that New Zealand is at last uh, uh, having a reciprocal trade. When we visited the Opera Company's centre, the Maori cast had only recently reassembled. Actually, they were rehearsing. All day they rehearsed the Porgy and Bess numbers, and at night they rehearsed the Maori numbers they will perform at the Asian Trade Festival. The Australian tour was doomed to be a financial failure. I think there were serious doubts even before they left. Fred Ternovsky was a Jewish refugee who'd come to this country to escape Hitler. 
Not so much a musician, Fred was a born classical music entrepreneur, and both chamber music and opera owe him a huge debt. In 1965, Fred Ternoski was chairman of the New Zealand Opera Company, and just listen to the anxiety in his voice as he sends the cast on their way. Now, um, I don't think I'm exaggerating the importance of this tour by saying that this is by far the most important artistic event which has um, gone beyond these shores. Now, this is not to belittle anything that has been done before in the way of sending Maori choirs overseas or the, the Christchurch uh, choir that has currently gone to the festival, uh, to the Commonwealth Festival in London. But in magnitude and in scope, this is certainly the biggest venture of them all. And I can only say that the eyes of all of us here, and in fact the whole of New Zealand, will be glued upon how well you perform over there and how successful this tour will be. So, as I say, there's a great deal at stake. It is a very considerable risk, commercial risk if you like, but we are going into it with the full confidence that together with our friends and partners, the Australian Elizabethan Trust, that we will be able to make this a great success thanks to you. And I'm terribly grateful to Dobbs, who has been able to stay on and to see this through, and um, Ella Gerber, who, of course, will be here in our midst in a few days' time. And boys, look out. <laughs> when she comes. Uh, I hope you'll all be there to give a wonderful welcome, as we all will be. And, um, well, good luck once again, and all the very best to you. Miss Ella Gerber, who produced Porgy and Bess for the New Zealand tour, soon proved herself to be a hard task mistress. But for all that, she wore the love and respect of every member of the cast. They assembled in full to greet her at Wellington Airport when she arrived last Thursday to give the show its final polish for the Australian tour. Tuta, would you like to say a few words on behalf of the chorus? Uh, thank you for coming back. We loved you. And we still do. You're supposed and, uh, to rub noses. And you did it. <laughs> I want to give you the heart see you, miss. <laughs> Come on, let's rub noses for real. One, two. Okay. Now, I'm and, sorry. And, uh, well, Ella. Uh, How's your foot? It's very good. <laughs> we know what we're in for now that you're back. But we'll love it. Please we'll don't make it. the people feel that I'm fierce. I'm not. I'm sweet and docile. I've changed terribly since I've been gone. I'm worse. <laughs> <laughs> Ulrich is hiding his head. <laughs> Can uh, you visualize that? People, people, three cheers for Ella, please. Hip hip. Hooray! Hip hip. According to reports from Australia, the New Zealand Opera Company's production of Porgy and Bess has been very well received. However, Sunday the 9th of January was the first opportunity the Australian public had to see the Maori cast of the opera, 30 in number, performing their own traditional huckers, action songs, poi dances. They performed at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl in Melbourne before an audience of more than 20,000 people, and it was a tremendous success. It was the largest Maori concert ever seen in Australia. We listen now to the party singing the perennial favourite, Po Karekareana, and the soloists are James Pudidi, Hawke's Bay, Tifa Tayaka of Taranaki, and Thelma Grabia from Wellington. 
gentlemen, it's the Black and White Minstrel Show! Television was only just getting going here in 1965, and one of the earliest hits was a Brit series called The Black and White Minstrel Show, which featured old-time musical numbers performed by white performers in blackface makeup. Naff, right? But I think you have to ask, was it also a bit naff for Māori to masquerade as black Americans in Porgy and Bess? Was it cool simply because they didn't need brown makeup? I think your views on that are as good as mine. Here are two participants in the production summing up the experience. Firstly, conductor Dobbs Franks, and then Leo Fowler talks to the only member of the Māori cast interviewed at the time, Mark Metakingi. Um, you have been with uh, Negro, Paul Jean Bess, which is the traditional one. How does a Māori cast performing the same opera compare? Well, Miss Gerber and I attempted to do what I think any realistic people would do. We have not tried to make Negroes out of the Maoris because this is an obvious impossibility, but we have taken Porgy and Bess as an opera, as a love story, as a story about real human beings, and we have tried to use the quality that the Maori has and bring that to fore and bring that to bear. And I think it's certainly no more uh, um, dis disgraceful or disrespectful to the composer for the Maoris to do Porgy and Bess in their own emotional terms than it is for New Zealanders to sing Italian opera. Mark Metakini has been in several New Zealand opera company productions and he is quite happy over the coming Australian tour. Uh, Mark, uh, any, any particular highlights of the uh, experience you've just concluded? That's your first uh, experience as a professional group. Um, my first experience, I'm assuming that you uh, are referring to Porgy and Bess because uh, for myself I've been associated with nearly half a dozen operas in the company and uh, it has made a tremendous impact upon me mentally and uh, shown me just to what great heights a singer can get to providing he has the musical opportunities which uh, such a national respected a musical organisation, the New Zealand Opera Company, does provide. Uh, I found that touring with European, predominantly European chorus, it was a great uh, area of professional accomplished singers and this uh, enabled the, the Opera Company to provide more opportunities for extra musical work outside of the actual productions. But with the Maori singers in the last Porgy and Bess, although we had tremendous natural ability, the things that we could have done uh, which were only highlighted on the last Don Giovanni Il Trovatore tour were somewhat limited because of our classical musical experience. But I'm sure that this will come uh, with the up-and-coming generation of singers such as Kirita Kanawa and with the accomplishments of Hana as musical highlights and, of course, our own very well-known, internationally uh, famous Inia Tuirata these experiences, which can only do something good, as far as Mara is concerned, um, will provide the nece necessary musical background. It's a long time ago. Isabel Cowan, who sang Summertime in Porgy and Bess, passed away far too young. Same with Inia Tewirta. Quite a few of the chorus have gone by now too, and almost all of the American performers. 
But music director Dobbs Franks married orchestra leader Ruth Pearl, and the two of them made a wonderful contribution to trans-Tasman classical music for decades after. Dobbs still lives in Sydney and is still an active musician. Tony Williams, who sang Sporting Life, had a long career in television light entertainment, and if you're lucky, you'll hear him singing in Christchurch. Apparently, Ella Gerber, the redoubtable director, is also still alive at the age of 99. Porgy and Bess casts a long shadow. When playwright Bruce Mason found out that Inia Tawirta was coming back for the production, he wrote a radio play called Awatea, set in a remote village on the east coast. This featured Inia and many of the Māori performers from Porgy. A few years later, Mason adapted Awatea for the stage. He considered it his greatest single success, and you might have seen it when it was revived by the Auckland Theatre Company in 2012. After the show, the Porgy Chorus really had no future in opera. Most of them couldn't read music, and they just didn't have a classical music sound. So, they became the Māori Theatre Trust. On the one hand, they were an old-school concert party that did poi dancers and huckers all over the world. But they also performed specially written plays at Downstage in Wellington, and the awesome history of Māori theatre and film owes a lot to Porgy alumni. It's a bit unfair to pick out just the celebrated gentlemen like George Henare, Don Selwyn and Aparana Taylor. I'd love to tell you what all the women did, Thelma Grubmeyer and Hannah Tartana and all the rest, but maybe that's a story for another day. I do wonder about Ella Gerber's influence, not just for the incredible disciplined showmanship that I see in modern kapahaka, but also for being an assertive, accomplished female role model who didn't let men tell her she was some kind of lesser being. With all the ghastly stuff in our shared history, it seems to me that one of the untold stories in New Zealand is the ongoing effort of both Māori and Pākehā to find cool things that we can enjoy doing together. And that sort of brings the story right up to the minute. When pop star Steve Allen produced an anthem for the 1974 Commonwealth Games, the Māori Theatre Trust were on the record with him. The song was actually banned by the apartheid regime in South Africa. And if you're a fan of the outrageous fortune prequel Westside, you'll know that this was on the soundtrack of the very first episode. Mm-hmm. 